This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Uh, well, a warm welcome uh, this evening, a nice spring evening. Thank you to all of you for dodging the temptation of St James's Park and making it through the door. I know why you have, because uh, it, we've got a great event for you. Uh, I'm Gavin Kelly, I'm the chair of the Resolution Foundation, uh, and we're really excited about this event tonight. Um, now, at the Resolution Foundation, we like to try and put contemporary economic debate into context. Um, the big inquiry that we're running at the moment, Economy 2030, which we're running jointly with the LSE, uh, generously funded, I should say, by the Nuffield Foundation. In that inquiry, we're looking to learn from history, so we've got various papers in economic history, as well as international experience, and we're doing that in order that we can generate new insights, fresh insights, more rounded insights into the future economic policy of this country in the decades ahead. Now, given that, we feel incredibly fortunate to have uh, this discussion tonight about this book, because this is, obviously, my main job tonight is just to wave the book around and implore you to buy it. Um, but this is a big book in every sense. It's a big book with a big argument and um, an incredible sweep. Um, Power and Progress, I mean, it has, to, it has to with that subtitle. Power, power and Progress, a thousand-year struggle over technology uh, and progress is, as the title suggests, it's a historical piece um, uh, which takes insight from a, a really a formidable range of economies at different periods of time. But it isn't, like lots of books, unlike lots of books, I should say, in this sort of, which, which take that big sweep, it's not shy about looking into the future and setting out an agenda. So it looks to the past, looks around the world, and it gives us a, a forward-looking agenda, which, as someone who oversees a think tank, is very, very welcome. So we're really delighted to uh, welcome its author, or it's one, of its, one of its two authors, Darren Asamoglu, tonight. Thank you for joining us. It's a real honour to have you here. For anyone who doesn't know, Darren, and I suggest I would thought that most of you probably do. Um, he's one of the preeminent economists of his generation. He's a professor of economics at MIT. Uh, and very obviously, he is an economist and comes from that tradition. One of the things I most love about uh, his work is that he really does draw in a very kind of open way on politics, on kind of the role of social institutions and, of course, history in trying to generate a kind of an, under, an understanding of why economies perform the way they do. So he is, in my view, a kind of classical political economist as well as an economist, uh, 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 and that is a thoroughly good thing. Uh, now, Darren not only writes about productivity, he personifies it. Um, uh, he embodies that notion, and people, I've, he's, he's, probably, he's probably kind of bored of hearing people say this, but I, 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 I believe that people who look into these things, and there are people who look into these things, suggest that he's the most productive economist, uh, I think, on the planet, I think, in terms of publications and certain types of journals and so on. Um, indeed, I actually heard... Uh, your co-author, who we should also mention, of course, Simon Johnson, who co-wrote uh, co this book, uh, talk about this. Uh, so now Simon, if, if you don't know him, he was the chief economist at the IMF during the financial crisis. So I would suggest he knows something about a fast-moving work environment. <laughs> he described the dealing with the financial crisis as, as basically a picnic compared to having to, to, to the six months of co-writing this book with Darren. So... Um, 
you are a, a single kind of lone man answer to the UK productivity crisis for the duration of your stay. Um, so that is, we're going to hear from Darren, but we're also going to hear from Diane Coyle, who I think will also be known to pretty much everybody in this room. Diane, um, apart from being generous with her time at Resolution Foundation events as a regular speaker, uh, she's Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge University, where she's co-director of the Bennett Institute. And I also think she deserves a plug for being a formidable book reviewer and providing a great public service to the likes of me. Productive in reading books. Uh, very productive in reading books. And, and you've written a fair few too. Um, so we're going to hear from Diane. And Diane uh, is one of our leading economists and thinkers on the productivity and particularly technology. So um, I think is uh, very well placed to give observations on the book. Um, so in terms of how this is going to work, um, we are going to hear from Darren, he's going to set out the kind of overview, an overview of his argument. Um, uh, not every chapter, not every twist and turn of the tale, but we're going to get the central, central thrust. We'll then give Diane uh, the opportunity to give her reflections. We'll have a bit of a conversation. We're going to make sure we've got time to hear. I can see we've got a great audience of people, so we'll make sure we've got some space to hear from your questions, um, you can, if you're online, uh, thank you for joining us, you can ask your questions on slido.com. You can do that if you're in the room, but we also have these things called microphones, which will appear. Um, and we need to be done by 6.30, so that's my other job. Um, you're not allowed to leave the building if you haven't bought a book. Sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is someone on the door stopping you leave. Uh, so that is how we're going to run it. Uh, so over to you, Darren. Thank you. Wonderful. Should I stand up? Or? Uh, you, we're relaxed. It's very much. Uh, up to all right. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah. Okay. All right. This is this is relaxed. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Gavin, this, uh, for the wonderful introduction. It's a great honor to be here at the Resolution Foundation. It was a challenge to get here because I was supposed to be in London yesterday, but uh, flights got cancelled. But but I'm here, and I'm really happy to be sharing the stage with Diane, and from whose work I've learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to hear her perspective on the book that I have written with Simon. So instead of giving a summary of the book, because I think if I try to summarize it, I would have the temptation to get into every twist and turn, uh, let me actually tell you why Simon and I wrote the book. And in that context, I'll try to explain what we think a or some contributions of the book might be. We wrote the book because we think we are at a turning point in terms of the future of inequality, work, and productivity, and perhaps democracy. Because of both what has happened over the last half a century with digital technologies and what's uh, transpiring right now with AI, especially generative AI. And we wrote the book to provide a different perspective on these developments, in part as a corrective against something that I think is more easily felt on the other side of the Atlantic as sort of a deep techno-optimism. And by techno-optimism, I don't mean the view that technology is necessarily immediately going to be wonderfully beneficial for everybody. But a more sort of plausible version of techno-optimism that ultimately technological progress automatically will bring good outcomes <laughs> for most people, both in terms of social living conditions and quite importantly for an economist in terms of wages and living standards. So this techno-optimism is very widespread in Silicon Valley, in fact even sometimes more 
bolder, uh, stronger versions of it. And it's also very widespread in the economics profession where we deeply believe that technological advances that expand production capabilities create a number of very powerful forces for wages to increase. And once wages start increasing or labor demand starts expanding, good outcomes will come. The reason why the book is called Our Thousand Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity is that we think this proposition is wrong, historically and conceptually. And of course, we are aware and we completely agree and upload that today we are beneficiaries of industrial technologies. We are immeasurably more comfortable, much richer, much healthier, uh, much in much better living uh, urban and uh, uh, other conditions than people who lived, say, 250 years ago. And that's because of advances in industrial technology. But where we think the more optimistic accounts go wrong is that there was nothing automatic about it. And that's what the struggle is meant to signify. And we go back to the medieval period and spend a lot of time on in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution to argue that there was nothing automatic, self-correcting, self-acting that would bring higher wages, better living conditions for the working class. In fact, even though there is some controversy on this, our summary of the evidence is that real incomes of the English, British working people did not improve much for about 80, 90 years. At the same time, their working conditions significantly worsened. Uh, they started working 20% or so more hours. Their working hours were much harsher, subject to less autonomy and much greater discipline. Their living quarters got much worse. They, uh, living, uh, their, their life expectancy and health deteriorated. And there was nothing automatic about this process self-correcting itself. It did reverse in the second half of the 19th century. But that reversal was an outcome of what we call the struggle. In particular, it got realized when what Simon and I argue are the two key pillars of shared prosperity from technology became realized. And those are a direction of technological change that doesn't just automate work, but creates new tasks, new jobs, more pro-human capabilities out of technological knowledge, and a Second, as a second pillar, an institutional framework that provides better representation and bargaining power to working people together with other institutional prerequisites of this, for example, democratic participation. So it was those two processes, technology shifting away from the early sort of uh, coal mine, harsh factory system, uh, spinning and weaving technologies that uh, sort of sidelined labor to more technological pathways that increased the marginal productivity of workers, created new industrial and later clerical tasks, design tasks, inspection tasks for workers, and a major process of tech, uh, institutional change that started with democratization, the recognition of trade unions, uh, much greater effort in terms of regulation and sanitation investments and other types of functions of the government that were completely missing in the second half of the 18th or the first half of the 19th centuries. We think those two pillars are not unique to the English or the British experience. They're certainly not unique to that episode. They are always the key points with, on which we need to depend on if 
technological advances are going to bring shared prosperity. We see them again, for example, in the remarkable period of about 30, 40 years in which all industri most industrialized nations experienced very rapid growth with very, very rapid increase in wages, especially at the low end of the wage distribution. Again, those same two pillars, creating new tasks for workers out of new technologies and worker representation and democratic participation were key. And we argue that all of these things started being unraveled around uh, the late 1970s, early 1980s. And this unraveling in terms of, for example, a huge increase in inequality, slowdown in wages in the United States, and similar somewhat less pronounced patterns in other countries, including the UK, were because those two pillars got undermined. Worker power declined. Uh, management pr priorities started shifting towards labor cost cutting, shareholder values, and automation. Later, monitoring, just like what we saw in the early phases of the Industrial Revolution. And we are particularly worried, not just because of the events that happened in <coughs> uh, the 1980s, 90s, and 2000, but because we think we are seeing an acceleration of these pernicious trends with AI. AI, in particular, is a turning point because it has the capacity to increase productivity. It has the capacity to create myriad new tasks. It can empower workers. It can empower citizens. In fact, people were not completely wrong when, at the early phases of the internet, they thought that social media, the internet, uh, decentralized uh, information dissemination would strengthen democracy and communication and participation. In the same way that people who were real pioneers of the computer revolution in the 1960s, uh, late 1960s, early 1970s at MIT and Berkeley were not completely wrong when they thought that computers would be a liberating tool uh, and would empower workers against big corporations like the IBM. They weren't wrong in theory. They turned out to be wrong because that was not the path that digital technologies applied to work to it, and it's not the path that we use social media and the internet. But those are possibilities, and AI amplifies those possibilities. In the book, we go through a number of cases where we think AI technologies broadly and generative AI can be used in ways that creates new tasks, new capabilities, new information for human decision makers. We also outline ways in which it can strengthen democracy. But none of this is automatic, and in fact, the struggle that is the subtitle of the book has been so far lost by the working people and by democratic forces. So there is a reason for reinstating or reaffirming uh, that this is not an automatic process. And we try to outline ways of changing the narrative, re-strengthening institutions in a more balanced way, and also some policy solutions. We do not argue that we have the solutions. In fact, AI is so fast changing and such a new technology that many regulations and many policies are bound to backfire, such as, for example, general data regulation, privacy protection, or GDPR policy of the European Union, which was completely well-meaning and actually quite uh, sophisticated, but it backfired in ways because it's a very difficult problem. We, are, we wrote the book, and I'm here as part of spearheading this conversation because I think the most important part of this is that the techno-optimism that I mentioned <clears throat> goes hand-in-hand hand with the belief that there isn't much for the regular people, civil society, workers to do. Either AI is going to come in and bring goods to everybody, we just need to stand aside and watch, or it's going to turn into killer robots, nothing we can do. Both of these ends pacify people. 
And I think the solution is not in that pacification, but for general conversation to center on these issues, a civil society movement to have a voice in the direction of future technology. And that's the spirit, that's the hope that our book will contribute a little bit to that endeavor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and having just finished the book this morning, I can say that's a great, that it gives you a great feel for both the substance of the argument, but also the kind of spirit of the book, in that it's a, uh, it has a nice way of trying to say to people, here's lots of ideas, these definitely aren't all the ideas, and please kind of take part in the conversation. It's quite a sort of democratic book in that sort of sense. Right, I'm going to hold back my thoughts, of which I have too many. <laughs> uh, Diane, I'm going to um, pass over to you to give your take on the bits of the book that kind of spoke to you. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Darren. I'm going to um, try to do the impossible and sum up in 30 seconds what I think the, the argument of the book is. And that it's, there, are, there are three strands if we're thinking about how technology is going to work for society. One is about what innovations happen, what's the direction of innovation. One is about, are we in an expansive phase where firms will create jobs for workers to do involving new tasks? And the third is, what are the institutions that then ensure that the benefits from that in productivity get widely shared? He's nodding. I think that's OK. <laughs> so I've got a few comments on really the first and third of those and focusing on the digital. Um, and. Uh, starting with the direction of innovation there, and why is it that we've ended up with what the Daily Star called the attack of a psycho chatbot? Um, there's, there's a lot of... I, I, I miss British newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, said, it said underneath, we don't know what it means, but we don't, we're, we're scared. We're scared. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of harmful innovation, is the first thing I want to say. It's not just technology, although that's what I'm going to focus on. But if you think about the food system the pharmaceutical system, the finance system, they are not serving society well. They're creating uh, income, profits, high incomes for a small group of people, but we've got a food system that's making us unwell, we've got a farm system that requires people to stay ill, we've got a finance system that's a zero-sum game and is ripping everybody off. So there's a really big question about the direction of innovation generally, I think. Um, why have we got uh, psycho chatbots and not the equivalent of the washing machine uh, which transformed people's lives in the mid-20th century. So it's partly about corporate ethics and the sense of purpose, as Colin Mayer at Oxford has been arguing, but also about the institutions that shape the direction of, of innovation. And that's things like maximising short-term short shareholder return. It's about uh, enabling um, the, the uh, use of debt and the short-term returns that encourages. It's about the failure to tax pollution. And so a whole clutch of institutions that go much broader than the digital domain, I think. The, the capitalist uh, free market innovation machine has stopped working for people. Um, but then if we think about digital markets in particular, I hope we can have a bit of a conversation about what to do there, given that generative AI is where the focus of the problem is at the moment. And so the book has some suggestions that I quite like. Tax digital advertising is clearly pernicious, the hunt for clicks. <laughs> Um, but also it says break up big tech and enforce data property rights. I like those less. They're not my top choices. So I think thinking about data as property is really um, uh, dangerous, actually, because it isn't like intellectual property or any other kind of property. It's really a, a digital encoding of social relations. And social relations can't be owned by one party or the other. 
So digital data governance is a super important issue, but I think reframing the debate there around um, who has the right to access certain kinds of data and what are the responsibilities that go with that. Um, because privacy is a bit of a, uh, a red herring, that we have lots of very sensitive information that we don't mind people knowing, but we trust the people who know, we understand what their obligations to us are. So can we translate that kind of uh, construct into the digital domain is the conversation I would like to have about data, not about enforcing um, property rights there. On breaking up big, big tech, gosh, that's appealing, isn't it? Um, but it would be very costly to unwind because part of the value that people get out of the big tech companies is the range of services they offer. Of course, that ties us in and they can degrade the services, but there's a lot of evidence that people really highly value that. So there might be some major unintended consequences there and it would end up in the courts for years and only the Americans or the Chinese can do that. So I think the first step is to prevent acquisitions. And there was this really interesting example recently where the CMA stopped Microsoft from taking over um, <coughs> Blizzard, Act Activision Blizzard, whatever, whichever it is. Um, my goodness, what an interesting hysterical reaction there was from Brad Smith of Microsoft there, mm -hmm. as if it was the end of the world that they couldn't take over a games company and they'd have to develop their own games. Extraordinary response there. So I think actually preventing more acquisitions is a really good first step. Um, and um, I'm proud of the CMA for having been the first to take that. It looks like the Biden administration will um, go the same route. And then um, there's an issue about how do you enforce um, access to non-rivalrous information that the big tech companies hold that enables interoperability, enables switching, frees up the market, enables different kinds of innovation and competition to come along. And that's about some technical things. What are the interfaces? What are the APIs? How do you um, uh, design those? Now, that's a challenge because it gets the government or public agencies into product design in the technology markets. But I think that's unavoidable because these are markets that tip to dominant companies. So any decision that you take is going to shape the market one way or the other. So if you've got to get into that, do it wholeheartedly and figure out how to um, uh, enable this uh, greater openness to the markets and interoperability. So that's really technical stuff, um, which I love as a card-carrying economist. Um, you could think about some big political interventions, and I'll end with these, that um, haven't really entered the public debate very much, but it's worth thinking about and thinking about what would be the conditions that would enable, would enable these to happen. So you could say that the owners and managers of these big tech companies have a duty of care to people. You could introduce some, uh, not just fines, but potentially criminal liability for that. Um, it happens in the nuclear industry, for instance. So that's one possibility. You could um, decide that social media companies should be designated as publishers. And I think those responsible for regulating publishing would hate that idea mm -hmm. because of what it implies. Um, but it's possible, and it would open up some massive civil liabilities for some of the outcomes that we see in big tech. And then the final one that I'm quite keen on because of my past as a BBC trustee and um, uh, long-time believer in the importance of public service broadcasting is the public option. And should we think about some um, <coughs> mashup of the BBC and CERN uh, created by um, liberal democracies to um, put a stake in the ground and say, 
we're going to do some innovation, we are going to fund the R&D that's needed, we're going to put the investment in that's needed and um, have a different kind of direction of innovation that is there for the humans. So I'll stop there, thank you. Well, that's uh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to keep you um, That's why we were right to get you to come along. Um, now, uh, we're going to come back to you in a minute, Darren, to pick up on those points, although we're going to regulate you a bit because we could, I know we could fill the whole session just on those issues and we've got quite a lot of turf uh, that you have given us to cover. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to, of course, the tech is bound to fail because that would just be too, uh, that would just be too retaliating. Can we bring up a, a poll? If my tech won't do it, it will. Now, we believe in, we believe in sort of democratic participation here, so we always have a poll. Um, and Dan, you're not allowed to say it's all of these things um, because that's cheating. Uh, but people, if you want to vote, do vote. The well, question is, what's the best way to ensure that AI revolution brings benefit to workers uh, and others, um, not just to firms? And we've basically got the kind of big tech thing, but we bundled in a few things there. We've got subsidising, okay, kind of kind of a Biden-esque, if you like, a subsidising directly intervening in the trajectory of technology, which the book covers quite a lot. We've got stronger worker power, and we've got you're barking up the wrong tree, none of this stuff's going to work <laughs> as an option. Don't take offence if that's what they go for. I don't think they will, but you never know with democracy. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so vote often and uh, vote early, as they say. Um, now, we will come back to that. But, Dan, first of all, I'm going to give you a chance to pick up on Diane's comments before yeah. we can open up a bit more yeah. widely. Well, those are wonderful comments. Thank you, Diane. And uh, you focused on the policy aspects. So let me just give some background for why, you know, there, there are other... Uh, policy ideas there more on the production process, but yeah. you've focused on the so the AI and social media aspect, which I think is very important. So uh, digital ad tax is wonderful and interoperability completely. We don't talk enough about it, but that's that's great. I think uh, definitely, as you said at the end, uh, thinking of the social media and now AI-based things is just a, a passive publisher is not right. So that's why we talk about a renewed Section 230 where you have responsibility for the material that you promote. So I think that very much aligns with your ideas. So why the data stuff? So there, yes, there is some disagreement. I had started exactly like where you were about eight years ago. And I have shifted around, partly uh, as a result of many conversations with Jaron Lanier, who is the original uh, uh, sort of inventor of the idea of data rights. Uh, and I think the best illustration of the reason why I shifted my position comes from the War, War Writers Guild strike at the moment. So that's all about data, which is creators have contributed to lots of shows, those are out there. Can you train and get the AI programs to take that and produce new, generally low quality shows without sharing some of the benefits with the writers and the creative artists? 
And I think the Writers Guild is very, very important it's because it's the first labor organization that understands this is going to be a battlefield for the future of AI. Now, creating property rights may not be just the best way, but some sort of regulation, and I think the, the way that we put it is data unions, which is the second idea that Jerome Lanier came up with. May not, may not be practical, but essentially that's what Writers Guild, in fact, in the book, way before the Writers Guild strike, we had given the Writers Guild as an example for that. On the breakup of big tech, uh, our take is this may not work. It's not sufficient by itself. But as a political economist, I worry that these are the most gargantuan com companies that we have produced in humanity's history, much more powerful than Standard Oil. And that gives them a lot of power, not just political power, that's what we emphasize a lot in the book. I didn't have time to get into it, perhaps in the questions time. They have persuasion power and size and their reach is part of it. And as long as that persuasion power remains, I think other reforms are gonna get stymied. So that is a political economy argument for why they need to be broken up. And the acquisition problem is actually even worse than what you explained. Microsoft, Google, Facebook, they have acquired so many companies and even sidelined and have not applied the technologies, what people refer to as killer acquisitions. It's really their ability to acquire and reshape the industry is giving them enormous economic and social power. Breaking them up may not be a fine enough policy, but that we think it needs to be considered. Dan, do you want to quickly come back on any of that? No, I think we you should. Want to, you might have, okay. Well, I'm going to, in that case, I'm going to give you a few questions. Um, uh, it's slightly different, sort of on the argument, and then a bit on what this means for us here, given that you're sat in the heart of London. Um, so on the argument, I mean, at the, at the kind of heart of the book is a big claim, a big, a big kind of a big argument saying that it is possible for governments to fundamentally bend the trajectory of technological development in a direction that it's not currently going, that you call kind of human-friendly or worker-friendly, but it's kind of a pivot. Um, and to back that up or to give energy to that, you point to examples, you point to renewables, where obviously the kind of arc of technological evolution has been sh shifted very fundamentally over the last last generation and you give and you finished the book actually on with the example of HIV AIDS where a whole kind of new lease of life was given to um, a, a technological kind of path by civil society and obviously by governments and so on and we got to a place we never thought we'd get to so and so on and you could do the same on COVID so there the kind of that that's what animates the kind of it's possible to do this type of argument I think I think I'm, I'm hoping being fair um and, I, and it's compelling in lots of ways. But then I'm, so I used to work in pub, you know, economic policy and government, and I can see lots of representatives <coughs> of Her Majesty's Treasury and other institutions sat here. And I'm imagining my face when someone walks through the door and says, I, I've got a plan for kind of bending the arc of technological development in a human-friendly way. <coughs> let, let me set it out. And I, I'm, I'm that's being you know, harsh. But I, it is a very broad goal. Um, and it's much less well-defined, you might argue, than building renewables or, you know, solving AIDS or... So there's... It, like, just to talk to a, a kind of policy-informed audience about how... And you, and you do this all the time, but, like, how... Is that a tractable goal for policymakers? I mean, can, is it definable? Can, you, can, can a government really get behind it? Because it's quite broad. I think it looks like a hopeless task if you look at it from today's vantage point. 
governments haven't shown any ability to understand and haven't built the expertise to do it. Silicon Valley, it's its own empire. It looks hopeless. But I think many things that were achieved in the regulation and scientific domain appeared very difficult or impossible at the time. So many of the defining innovations of the post-war era had government leadership in the United States, uh, and many of those appeared crazy. I mean, you know, with the technology that you know, people had in the 1940s building computers and nuclear weapons. I mean, you know, not, not that I'm applauding nuclear weapons, but the, the, the ability, actually, the government resources to corral researchers on that agenda was very impressive. And thank you for mentioning renewables and HIV AIDS, but there are many other examples of that, some pernicious. We, see, we, we, we cite work, uh, it's very interesting work by uh, Harvard researcher David Yang and co-authors on how Chinese government policy on surveillance is reshaping the direction of AI, not just in China, but throughout all autocracies. Actually, Chinese companies, because of government policy in China, are becoming real experts at surveillance technologies and have, export, have started exporting it to uh, over 60 non-democratic countries around the world. So the ability of the government to influence the direction of innovation is everywhere. We see it in the healthcare space in the United States and the United Kingdom in, in other industrialized nations. But there's a big issue. It is two issues. One, which we don't talk enough in the book, uh, I've discussed it in other uh, works, but perhaps it should have been in the book as well, but the book is long. Uh, picking winners never works. So it really needs to be done in the context of setting broad goals for technology classes, industries, not this company I like, this company I don't like. So that's one caveat. The other one is you're 100% right. The renewable problem is easier. You know, at the end of the day, you know, well, I'm I just going to contradict myself. I was going to say you can identify what's a renewable and what's not, but actually a lot of... Uh, major energy companies are selling certain things as renewable technologies like carbon uh, ca carbon capture, which is sort of borderline. So, so there is some gray area there, whereas what is a human complementary technology? If I give a better tool to you so that you can uh, monitor your underlings, is that a human complementary technology is complementing you, but on the other hand, it's perhaps reducing the autonomy of other people and, uh, and, and, and perhaps even pushing them into much harsher work conditions. So there is a lot of gray areas, but what I would say is that before we started this agenda, there was a lot even more gray area in renewables. Nobody knew what a clean technology was until we developed the measurement framework for what is the core carbon content of different technologies, how they're contributing, what's their supply chain. Even today, there are a lot of games that European governments are playing by saying, oh, we are clean because they're importing a lot of coal-heavy things from China or Indonesia. So. I don't think the problem is qualitatively different, but we do not have that quant quantitative measurement framework and we would need to develop that. Okay, okay, that's great. I'm sure other people will want to pick up on that. Let me, let me just give you one more thing just to try and bring your book sort of to this audience in this place. Because it's a, as I said, it's a really cosmopolitan book. It takes inspiration from all over the world and so on. But when you read it, it's clearly a book which is rooted fundamentally in a kind of American outlook, which is not surprising and certainly not a criticism, because kind of sometimes on the page and sometimes kind of just like beneath the page, there's the vibe of we're at the vanguard of technological progress in the place that we're writing from. There's a lot of investment 
and automation. There's a lot of robotics going on. There's all sorts of new things going on, which may, which is already and is likely to increasingly displace labour. Um, and of course, we have big choices we can make because we can set big new rules and people are going to have to follow them. And then you come to this place. Um, and when we look at this place, we are, let's phrase it, in many ways, we're a laggard when it comes to automation and robotics in terms of the various rankings that people can come up with. I mean, we don't have any investment. We've had a seven-year investment strike from business. We haven't had productivity growth in 15 years. This audience knows all these facts, and so do you. And we're job-rich. And every single prediction that has been made in the last 20 years about job displacement in the UK context has been categorically wrong. We just don't see it. Um, and of course, the idea that we can set rules for tech in this country um, is with the birds, basically, I think most people would say, but tell me if you think that's wrong. So we are different. So what I'm kind of, would, and you know that most, or if not all of that already, so build a bridge for us, kind of caveat or amend or explain how your book, which is this cosmopolitan, is not just written for Americans, how it relates to an advanced but struggling, let's be honest, uh, market economy like ours. Well, I would also say uh, techno-optimism is not as strong here. No, it's not. Uh, but the reason why I said it at a turning point, not just inequality, not just work, not just democracy, also productivity, the productivity problem is very severe in the United, United Kingdom, but it's not unique <laughs> to there. I mean, the US has the most paradoxical outlook. The number of patents has increased sixfold in uh, over just over 40 years. The number of new products, widgets, foundation models is just skyrocketing. And if you look at aggregate productivity, and it's not mismeasurement, we can get into the details, there is of course mismeasurement, but this is not mismeasurement, it is as slow as it has ever been. So every country is having a difficulty in translating new technologies into productivity growth. And my argument, the argument in the book, is that that's because we're not using them in the right way to amplify and intensify the capabilities of humans. And so therefore, yes, this is relevant for the UK in that respect. Also, uh, you know, the British economy has experienced deep increases in inequality, just like the US, not as extreme as the US. Nobody has uh, seen the declines in the re real earnings of low education workers as in the United States, but inequality is a major problem for the UK. And I think UK has also ha a special place, which is that it can play a very important role in changing the agenda of the regulation discussion. I think every country needs to play that role. One of the things that we talk briefly in the book, all too briefly, deserves its own book, is what these new technologies are going to do to the emerging world. Mm -hmm. And I think the implications are sweeping, and the problem is there's no voice from the emerging world in the policy debates. So India's voice <laughs> needs to be heard. Brazil's voice needs to be heard. Those are much harder. UK's voice is much easier to be heard. It's a bridge between Europe and, uh, and the United States. You, you, US policymakers are more likely to listen to UK policymakers than European ones, perhaps. So I think there's a lot that UK policymakers can do in playing a formative role here. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to throw one more at you, uh, and then we're going to open it up to so get your questions uh, formed in your mind. I'll just come to you briefly. But um, at that, another pillar of your book is 
but you touched it in your remarks, is the central importance of labour organisation and labour power as a kind of countervailing influence to capital and how it wants to shape technology. Um, and that really comes through, and it's not like a kind of add-on, it's kind of at the heart of the story, which is, which is kind of uh, striking when you, as you read it. You, it's one of the areas where I feel, again, don't take this as a criticism, but I feel like you kind of pull back a bit in, at the end of the book in terms of what that means for the future, because I mean, it's hard, right? You know, you're starting from where the labour movement is in the, in the US today, and it's a different story here, but not fundamentally different in the UK. It's not totally straightforward. So just give us a sense. We, we know that you think it's really important, but give us a sense of like how possible avenues for rebuilding the countervailing power that you yeah. say is the heart of the argument. Yeah, so why is there that implicit pessimism that you've read at the end about the labour movement? Three reasons. First of all, the history of the labour movement in regards to the issues that we emphasise is one of almost complete failure in the UK and largely failure in the United States. And again, we don't go into enough details here, I do in some of my other writings. What the labour movement needs to do is pull back from bargaining just over wages. It needs to be involved as worker voice in how you shape technology training policies and so on. In the UK, that's been done very little. In the US, it's been done some very successfully during certain episodes, but not generally because of a conflictual relationship. Both in the UK and the US, we have a problem, which, for example, Sweden and Germany don't have, which is establishment-level bargaining. So all of this is much easier if you have industry-level bargaining, less conflictual, more communication, more ability to shape the... Uh, technology choices without disadvantaging the cost competitiveness of an establishment. Unfortunately, in the US, that's a problem. Actually, it's not according to the current leading of the law by legal scholars. Industry-level bargaining is not even legal. So, so, so that's, that's a problem. And then the third is old-style labor organizations are not going to be appropriate for the future age. Something like Writers Guild or the organization in the Amazon Staten Island might be much more of a germinal type of thing that perhaps people can build on. We mentioned the Writers Guild exactly in that context, but, but I am uncertain exactly what the future... I am convinced we need a labor organization of some sort, labor voice, voice but how it will take shape, I don't know. Okay. There was a lot of institutional innovation in the Industrial Revolution. Unions, cooperatives, mutuals, mm. friendly societies, uh, all the Outcoming. learning places. Yeah. So we need that kind of thing. That is a good note to open it up. Right, uh, we have a microphone. So we're going to open up in the room. Greg has got a microphone. So we've got two questions in the front row here, Greg. We've got the lady in the dress and we've got Andrew Donis next to her. Will you tell us who you are, please? Uh, hello, my name is Saskia Otto. Um, thank you so much for hosting this event. I can't wait to read the book. Um, I work at the Fabian Society and I used to lead on data access policy in DCMS. Um, I um, have a couple of questions, so thank you for humouring me. Make them um, punchy. <laughs> um, I spend a lot of my time thinking about technology and labour markets and um, how we can move from predicting and kind of it happening to us to actually shaping it. So, um, and of course, the, you know, the sort of trade union movement is an important part of that. And I think about a lot about how you can translate firm level productivity improvements into kind of a virtuous cycle where you also reduce work working time. Um, and I was wondering beyond the kind of um, collective bargaining, whether there's any kind of, you see any opportunities for government policy um, innovation to, to play a role in that. And my second question is just, you know, again, we're trying to, you know, 
having worked in government, we spend a lot of time trying to keep up. Um, and do you, and like, is there, like, what can we do to kind of bring government to a point where it's actually being proactive and kind of meeting challenges as they emerge rather than being several years behind? Thank you, thank you. Those are excellent points. One, and should, I'm going to take a few. Up. I, oh, okay. I, I think, oh, yeah, yeah, I think you might have um, a number. So I'm going to... Andrew Adonis. A Andrew Adonis. Two, two brilliant uh, presentations. Uh, and two quick questions. You didn't respond to Diane's uh, question about public option. Uh, not just BBC CERN, which would be interesting, but what might this mean for universities? What kind of partnerships might MIT, you know, an institution you know well, f forge to, to create a kind of public option? Secondly, if you're going to go down the road of breaking up tech giants, which I think is a, a lot to be said for, what two or three steps would you take immediately, like now, if you were um, in charge of the levers of power? Okay, so just the small, easy ones there. Um, I've got this... Uh, a lady in the middle. Yeah. Thank you. Any over the side? Yeah. Hi, yeah. Um, my name is Shreya. Uh, thank you so much for the talk. Um, a quick question on sort of these institutions that you suggest might actually help us balance out the sort of rapid technological change. What role do you think international organisations have within that? I know you mentioned sort of, Diane, that uh, we had trade unions and things forming. We also had at the time, um, you know, following Second World War, international organisations, you know, do the current ones exist in the co correct capacity to support this, or do we need new ones? Do we need ones coming out of the third sector, maybe not sort of uh, diplomatic organisations as we know them? So yes, thank you. Okay, thank you. Great question. Let's, let's take that bunch. I know there's, there's some over here as well, but we'll come to them in a minute. Derek. I can jump in and jump. Dan, feel, feel free yeah. to add. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you, Saskia, because you've made one point that I often make, so you give me an opportunity to make it again. You know, I am often asked, what will AI do to us? What will AI do to work? What will AI do to democracy? And my answer, if I'm not too lazy to say it, is we, it will do to us what we choose it to do to us. There isn't a predetermined path, and exactly your questions and Andrew's questions and others are on that, so that's, that's, that's the spirit. And in that way, I think, there are many ways in which we can try to experiment with new data arrangements and new institutions. And that experimentation has to be done exactly like Diane said, uh, in the way that we experimented with new uh, work arrangements after the onset of the Industrial Revolution. When it comes to work day arrangements, I, my instinct is that we have to let new sort of experiments take place and see as long as they are consistent with some amount of worker autonomy. My reading of the evidence is that, you know, very radical plans of let's not worry about people having jobs, we'll provide universal basic income, those are not viable options for a variety of reasons both because they will actually exacerbate the problem of the direction of technology and also create even greater alienation in society. But shorter work days, especially if workers can remain productive and engage and view their jobs as meaningful, I think that's great. In terms of breaking up the tech, the first step I would take is exactly what Diane said, stop further acquisitions because unwinding these companies is going to be very difficult, but some of them are not that hard. I mean, you know, uh, I slightly disagree with uh, Diane that, for example, Facebook 
consumers are getting much value from the fact that Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp are joined. I think those are very easy to separate, but there's going to be a lot of pushback, so that's why the first step is just stop acquisitions, exactly like Diane said. Public option, unfortunately, I don't think that would work. Here's why. Uh, Wikipedia, I think, in line with Diane's statement about new organization, I think this is one of the most successful experiments uh, of the digital age. It, you don't see any misinformation. It has a very democratic governance. It's generally reliable. Now I trust Wikipedia with some checking as much as the British, uh, uh, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. But what has what has happened? Wikipedia has now been completely expropriated by ChatGPT. So if you're getting some sensible, clever answers from ChatGPT, most of it comes from Wikipedia. So the public options are going to be completely exploited by these companies unless we have the right type of regulation and hence I come back to you know who owns data, who owns the rights of creative talents. In terms of international organizations, absolutely. This is an international problem. It requires international coordination. Unfortunately, that's hard. And the two, two pillars that make it hard, one is China. Uh, China may follow in some things, but it's not going to follow on surveillance technologies and using AI for repression, and that's going to create a very complicated path. Second, uh, you know, just general policy coordination, especially when developing nations are not at the table and they're not prioritizing this because many of them are busy dismantling their democratic institutions right now, so they don't have time to worry about the future. So uh, I think that really complicates things. But that doesn't mean we are doomed because there's a lot of elbow room for regulatory innovations, especially in the United States, but also in the European Union. I mean, you know, European Commission has already changed the landscape of the digital industry, in my opinion, and it can do much more. In the, and if there is more collaboration between the US and Europe and the UK, I think that could be much more powerful. So I was thinking about the public option, not as playing on the same field, but changing the field mm. by doing R&D and inventing different kinds of techniques. Oh, OK, I completely agree with that. Just, just as 100%. The BBC's R&D arm and its its creative work. Oh yeah, yeah. Completely That's we, we, I completely agree, and we call for that. Yeah. On the um, international uh, front, the G20 actually is doing a lot of work thinking about data governance and technology, which is quite encouraging to see. So it's on their agenda. Um, I, I know I'm a complete nerd, but thinking about technical standards is really important here. And the model I often think about is the way that the European Union forced the industry to converge on the GSM mobile standard and the way that revolutionised that industry and actually opened up a lot of competition in, at that time um, in, um, in, in the sector. So thinking about how to set and enforce standards is very detailed stuff, but really important internationally. Right. Um my only one criticism is you need to stop apologising for being a nerd in this audience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a monster. You guys get a say and you're trying. Um, right now, I, I thought I think we've got time. We have got time for another round of questions. If they're going to be pithy ones, do, do we have more? I've got plenty. Any more? I've got. I think Ian in the back row. Is that right? Was there? Did you have one over here? Somewhere? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's just take this one. So, Darren, my flippant question is, are Asimoglu and Johnson the, the Marx and Engels of the 21st century? <laughs> discuss. Um, my, my more serious question is, you, obviously the title of the book, it, you're presenting a story of more continuity than change. We've always had technological change. We've always had this challenge. And as Diane mentioned, you know, we, in the 19th century, we, we, 
managed to get workers benefiting from these gains by introducing a variety of you know, uh, different institutions, social institutions, most importantly, you know, um, uh, democracy, to spread these benefits. But those are tricks we've already pulled. So why is that uh, that whole mechanism we invented not working anymore? What has changed that means it's not just a story of continuity for the last thousand years? That's a good and enormous question. Um, so a great front row, we've got this gentleman. Hello, David Miles from uh, Imperial College and Office of Budget Responsibility. Um, I, I think one thing you said, Darren, uh, I'm sure it's at the heart of the book, which I will read, is that technology is likely to generate widespread benefits when the technology, in some sense, is a complement to labour. Um, and I, in thinking about that and thinking about the advances that have gone, gone on recently and are going on right now, I kept thinking of examples, and they were all positive ones. And I, in the last 20 minutes, I've become a techno-optimist, and I wasn't before I came <laughs> in. Um, and uh, one of them was just in the area of finance that, Diane, you mentioned that it was hard to think that it, things had got better, and there were just oligopoly profits, and things weren't, weren't playing out to the benefit of people in general. I, I don't think that's quite right. Uh, if you go back a few decades, it was very difficult for individuals, small investors, to do much with their money, unless they had a lot of money, you'd have to get a stockbroker and to get advice would be difficult and the transactions were heavy. And now when you've got Vanguard and Fidelity, you know, you get lots of information online with small amounts of investment, you can invest in, a, in a, uh, an international diversified portfolio and pay 10 basis points. I mean, this is extraordinary. Um, ChatGPT, I've used it a couple of times already just for helping with coding. It's remarkably helpful and it's a, that's definitely a compliment to labour. In the UK it's extraordinarily difficult to see doctors, to see GPs. I could imagine we're not maybe too far off when from home you, you prick your finger, give a sample of blood or saliva and then you get a reaction to it using artificial technology. Sat-navs, all the examples I was able to think of were all really positive things where the technological advances were, they were complements to labour input in some sense and were very widespread. Am I just lacking imagination great question too so uh unless anyone's bursting again with a very short question no okay uh i'm gonna someone online has asked just to pick up if you've got what 30 seconds on the kind of eu versus us approach towards regulating ai which do you favor how different are they how should we understand that that's my nod to the online community i'm afraid uh so Three yeah. questions, and Diane, please just yeah. you jump into, and we're going to hopefully finish in under five minutes. Okay. Well, Ian, thank you very much. That's an excellent question, and it does take up quite a bit of the book. We think that there was a confluence of factors that weakened democracy and labor's participation, especially starting in the US, but also in the UK, and that coincided with a new, what we call a new vision or a new ideology and new pressure on managers, very much in line with what Diane mentioned as well, shareholders, value maximization, labor cost cutting, and then digital technologies arrive just at the right time to be reshaped by that vision. And then that sort of played an avalanche role that it further weakened trade unions, further weakened the democracy. So, so that's the path that got created. There was nothing necessary about that path. It was a different institutional 
avenues were feasible. But once we are in it, and we've been in it for 50 years, it becomes harder to reverse. And I think the one thing that complicates things is that technology and its adoption and its evolution is very fast. You know, the speed with which large language models are spreading means that time for innovations, institutional innovations, new countervailing powers to emerge, those are becoming harder. And that's where the complication for the next several decades lies in my mind. Uh, David, thank you very much. That's an excellent question. But you know, it's, I guess it's glass half healthy, half full. So on finance, I will let Diane talk about that because she's more knowledgeable. Uh, but the other examples you give are exactly our arguments in the book that human complementary rollout of these technologies is quite feasible technically and can be productivity enhancing. So uh, we talk about the entertainment industry, we talk about nursing, for example, nurses can be much, much better at healthcare delivery, diagnosis, prescription, uh, general upkeep with uh, real-time information based on you know, generative AI or, or other types of digital tools. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and education can be completely reshaped. Uh, programming is certainly one example of it, but two problems. Those are not the priorities and the areas which are getting the most uh, emphasis in the industry. So for example, in the education field, still much, much more is spent on automated testing, automated teaching, than creating, say, for example, new tools for teachers and hire more teachers so that they can do individualized education programs, which is quite feasible, but has just not been developed. In the case of large language models, Almost all of the major applications so far are targeting automation, although there are, it's not just the programming, there are other examples of a few cases in which they have been adopted in a more human complementary way, and those are the more productive ones. So it's quite feasible, but both the priorities, but also I would argue that's a longer discussion, the architecture of the program currently, the models right now, makes human complementary functions harder, and there's some technical reasons for that, but let's not get into that. And then uh, finally, the EU US, US regulation. Uh, regulation. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> well, I think the problem is that US has given up on regulation. Regulation requires human capital, skills, expertise, commitment, ethos. All of them has been destroyed. So they need to rebuild it. EU still has it, but the problem is EU has one advantage and one disadvantage. It's the same thing. It doesn't have a tech industry. So when you don't have a tech industry, vested it's interests are weaker. You've got the regulator, but it doesn't have the industry. So it makes things more complicated and it makes mistakes more likely. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Diane, last thoughts from you. Just a quick word on the finance. Um, there have been some good things, obviously. Some of them are older and not linked to fintech. There's quite a lot of predatory fintech around. And um, the way that finance interacts with um, digital identity is making it very hard for people who are excluded from the financial system ever, ever to get into it. I was interviewing somebody. I want to do some work on productivity of the financial sector, which has tanked. Um, they all think it's about regulation. But he did say to me, well, any of the metrics I can give you for productivity mean that I'm making a profit at somebody else's expense. On that note, um, now let's just see before, Dan's about to run off, I know, so feel free to do so. Um, let's just see what you said to our poll question. 
give you the last say. Tough regulation of big tech. Oh, and stronger work of power. Basically, neck and neck, which um, fits pretty well with your book, actually. And only 9% said you're barking at the wrong tree. <laughs> I, I would say, I, in life, I would take that as a victory. So, um, I'll go ahead and have an individual conversation with all of them. Yeah, you'll find them. <laughs> yeah, we won't give you the data. There, just um, now, uh, thank you to all of you, because, as I said, you chose to come into a gloomy room. Uh, not a gloomy conversation, but a gloomy room on a stunning night. So thank you. Uh, we really appreciate that. We always appreciate you giving us your time. Um, a massive thank you um, well, to Diane for being brilliant as, and uh, for your, your great insightful comments and to, above all to Darren, it's so good to have you here and your book is fantastic, please do buy it, genuinely. Um, and uh, with that I will end proceedings, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest Living Standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.